right. Well, listen, again, I want you to know how grateful I am that you're here. I want to talk a little about the Daffodil Festival. That's coming up. It's a major deal here in Gloucester. I have a confession to make. I have lived on the peninsula since 2003, and I have never attended the Daffodil Festival. So I am really sorry. I know. It's awful, right? But I will attend it this year, and I will be at the booth that Coastal is going to have at the Daffodil Festival because we need people to sign up and be there. It is really our first big opportunity to be a presence in our community. So I really want to encourage you to get involved in that thing. Sign up. There is a sign-up sheet at our welcome desk on the backside of this angled wall here. And I want you to get out there and get your name on it. Now, Jeff Williams is heading this thing up, leading it for me. And he tells me that with our eight small groups, if every small group would sign up for a two-hour stint of being there to make sure you cover it, we need four people in the booth for during that two-hour period, we'd be done, okay? So it's really not that hard. We got plenty of people to take care of this. If you're not in a small group, sign up anyway, okay? I won't care if we have an extra person uh, there at the booth. So uh, let's make this thing happen, okay? It's a really great opportunity for us to just be there, be present, be in our community at a major event that happens here. So I really want to encourage you to do that. And again, I really uh, hope that you will be thinking about Easter. We will have some invite cards ready for you shortly. And uh, so you'll have an opportunity to take them, hand them out to your friends and your family and your neighbors. It's going to be a great Sunday, a great day of worship. We're going to be talking about what are you going to do? Kind of the so what of Easter, all right? We're going to assume the resurrection, and we're going to talk about so what about it? Well, how is that going to make a difference for you, okay? So uh, I hope you will plan to be here. It's going to be a great Sunday of fellowship and worship, and uh, I trust you're looking forward to it. Today we are stepping into the final leg of our journey and our study in Genesis, and we are looking at Joseph's life beginning today. Joseph's story is, is uh, pretty incredible, and we're going to cover it in the space of four Sundays, uh, and I want you to know I'm not going to be here next week. I have the opportunity to go uh, spend about a week with my sister who is caring for my uh, 89-year-old dad up in upstate New York, and I'm going to go spend better part of a week there uh, trying to help out, do what I can around there. Pastor Joey will be here next Sunday. I'm really excited to have him come and open the scriptures uh, and teach you. But uh, for today, I want to talk about, let me, let me start with a really theologically rich piece of prose that you've probably heard before. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink, and while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box, but in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. And I knew it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Alexander was stepping into a horrible day, and this little kid's book goes through all of the things that were really bad about his day, and he went to school, and everything was awful. Have you had a day like that? Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're just engaging in one this morning. You got up, and the coffee maker didn't work, and, you know, whatever. Um, 
somebody, somebody said to me this morning, why is it when I have to get up, I can't wake up? And when I don't have to, I'm awake at six. What is up with that? Some days you feel like the old hee-haw song, right? Gloom, despair, and agony on me, right? Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, right? Some days it feels like that. I'm telling you, there were days in Joseph's life that were very much like that. If I were to pick a title for the whole a whole series about Joseph's life, it would be the one that I'm using today, Purpose in the Pieces. There were a lot of seemingly random pieces of Joseph's life that God put together all in the process of his working out, God's working out of his plan and purpose in the world. We are about to watch over the next few weeks as God takes the people of Israel, and he sends them about 70 people strong into Egypt where they will for the next several centuries incubate and become a nation of people through whom will come the Messiah who will be the savior of all mankind. We're watching God do that. It's really an incredible thing. Joseph's a great example of a man who knows how to or learned how to watch God work when everything seemed to be going against him. So I want today to remind you that God is still carrying out his purposes through a variety of situations. I'm going to cover (laughs) chapter 36 through 39 of Genesis this morning. Of course, I'm not actually going to cover all of that, but I am going to touch on bits and pieces from it because I want you to see this big picture. God is carrying out his purposes What is happening in your life today that may seem like a really hard and stressful thing, what what season you're in that may seem like it's a major downturn, God is working in the process. I think it's John Piper who said, God's doing about a million things a day, maybe it was 10,000, I forget the number, but uh, of which you might be aware of three of them. God is is working out his plan and purpose in the world. And we have framed this entire study, right, as not trying to discern what God wants from me so I can be fulfilled and fruitful and satisfied, but figuring out what does God want from me so that I fit into his plan and purpose that he's working out in the world. And his plan and purpose, of course, revolves around the coming of Christ and the gospel and making uh, a people for his own name from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How does this happen in life? Sometimes looking at the big picture like this can be helpful. So I want to begin by telling you that God is still carrying out his purposes when you don't have much to offer. Some of you feel that way, and I know that because I sometimes feel that way. We have all struggled with occasions when we felt like we didn't have much to offer to God. I'm not going to read through chapter 36, but let me tell you this. Esau had an impressive lineage already when Joseph was the story of Joseph began. If we were to read through chapter 36 of Genesis, we would find a listing of his genealogy. It doesn't preach real well, but let me summarize it this way. There are like five king, five sons 32 chiefs of tribes, and eight kings descended from Esau. According to verse 31 in chapter 36, 
These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. You have Jacob and Esau, the brothers, right? Esau's descendants are multiplying. He's got chiefs of tribes. He has kings already in his lineage before Jacob has even more than a few dozen people. And Joseph shows up, and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 37 say this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. He didn't have much to offer. He's the kid brother. He's the He's the, the little one that everybody sent off to watch the sheep. You know, you always get when you're the youngest one, which I wasn't, but I tried to take advantage of this as often as I could. The youngest one always gets the dirty work, right? The youngest one gets the leftover stuff that everybody else didn't want to do. Joseph is out taking care of the sheep. He's watching the flocks. Nobody is impressive yet in Jacob's lineage. Nobody. There's no chiefs. There's no kings. There's no nothing. Esau's got all of that. The lineage is great. Joseph's just the kid brother. He's just this guy who shows up. He's 17 years old, and it specifies, and he's a boy being brought up with his brothers. Can I, can I take you to 1 Corinthians? Because this is just a, a point of connection here for you, because I suspect that some of you feel very much that way. I just haven't got much to offer. So I want to just... Kind of for a quick rabbit trail here, I'm going to 1 Corinthians 1, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, that are not to bring not to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's how I put those two verses into my context anyway. If you don't think you have much to offer to God, get in line. Those are the people God uses most. The people who don't think they've got a lot going for them, the people who don't have much impressive background, the people who are just not sure they really have all the characteristics and traits needed, God steps in and takes the weak vessels and he uses them, not so that they can be seen as impressive in the world, but why? So that God can be seen as impressive in the world. People will look at somebody like that Wilson guy and say, good night, if God can use him, right? I'm serious. I, I, I grew up in a home. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew my family. And I have the privilege and joy of opening the scriptures every Sunday, most every Sunday, and teaching people the word of God and shepherding and caring for people. It's an incredible privilege to me, which I remember regularly. I don't have any reason why I deserve to be here. So if you don't think you deserve to be used of God in the world? How do I say this gently? You're right. (laughs) 
It isn't about whether you deserve it. It's not about your abilities or your skills or what God gets out of you. It's the glory that God gets to himself accomplishing his purpose through weak people. Aren't you glad for that? Man, I am so thankful for that. So God is still in control when you don't have much to offer. God is also still working out his purposes when you have strained relationships. These first 11 verses of chapter 37 are really an interesting lesson in, again, family relationships, family dynamic. We've seen a lot of that already in Jacob's family, right? Uh, And this just kind of continues the thing. There's a little sentence tucked in at the end of verse 2 talking about Joseph. It says, Joseph brought a bad report of them, that is, his brothers, to their father. Now, that's never going to end up well, right? I mean, I I think we can probably see because later on, uh, Jacob sends Joseph and says, I need you to go, you know, check in, see how your brothers are doing. So perhaps he had done that here and Joseph brought back a bad report. That's never a good start. When you're 17 and everybody's older and you say they were doing this, they were doing this, they were doing that, and dad's upset with them because of the report you brought, it really doesn't end well as a rule, right? But beyond that, he was favored by his dad. You would think Jacob might have learned that this was not a good thing, right? He, he was the favored one, and it didn't work out well for him. He ended up having to hightail it out of town because Esau was going to kill him. He was favored by his mom, Esau favored by his dad. He saw the impact of favoritism. And yet, here was Joseph. Boy, he was the apple of his eye. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This, this coat of many colors was not only beautiful, but it was, it was kind of a cultural thing. You give the fancy garment to the favored kid. You give the, the sleeve with the beautiful, long, flowing robes to the one who wasn't expected to do much manual labor. His brothers all knew what this was. He's the firstborn son of the most loved wife. He's the most loved son. He's not expected to do the work. He's expected to go and be the manager, to go check in and make sure everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do. And he's already brought back a bad report. They hated him. They hated him so much they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. It's really bad. You got 10 older brothers, all of whom hate you. So what do you do? Well, apparently, you tell them stories about how you're going to be in charge someday because that's what happens, right? Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Like, guys, listen, this is really cool. Listen, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. How cool is that? I know I'm adding a little, but uh, his brothers said to him, 
Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. So they hated him. They hated him even more. And now they hate him even more. And for his words, Joseph would be the kid, right? If he were in, in high school today, somewhere here, he'd be the one that got his butt kicked and stuffed in a locker, right? I mean, listen, I had this, I had this dream. You got to hear this dream. We had, we had sheaves. We had, you know, my car, if we want to put it in today's, my car beat all your cars at the track. And when we were finished, your cars came and stood around in a circle and turned their engines off. I don't know. It's just, and they hated him for it. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Are you serious, Joseph? Haven't you learned yet? Youthful pride. I forgot to tell you what I'm actually talking about here, right? Strained relationships, I think, can come from youthful pride, at least in this case. It, it can come from our own uh, unwise comments. I don't, uh, there's no indication that God revealed this to him and then said, oh, by the way, make sure everybody knows this is what's going to happen. But he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. God is still working out his purposes, even when you have strained relationships. Whether the relationship is strained because of your actions or because of another person's actions, God is still working out his plan. His plan does not get thwarted because my relationships are messed up. Sometimes he's using the strain in those relationships to accomplish his purposes. I hope that when you see the sovereignty of God in play, you don't look at it as God just randomly moving chess pieces around on a board. I hope you understand that when God takes difficult circumstances and uses them to accomplish his glory, he's doing what no other deity does or a supposed deity. All these other cultures had all these gods and all they could think of was, I just got to make sure I do the best I can to make the God happy. God is perfectly capable of having uh, everything accomplished the way he wants it done and he has no need for, uh, for us to step in and accomplish something for him. That's always our joy and our privilege and his grace that lets us be part of his plan. He is perfectly capable of taking the pieces of your life and giving them purpose, even if it revolves around strained relationships. Well, it's not a surprise that things were going south now for Joseph with his brothers. Verses 12 through 17, I'm not going to take time to read it, but it's his dad says, listen, go check up on your brothers. Let me know how they're doing. So he goes and he finds them. And verse 18 tells us that they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
putting it gently, God is still working out his purposes when you are dismissed, when you are just not counted as important to anybody else's part of the plan, at least in their mind. They plan to kill him. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to actually contemplate how you're going to kill them? Which is why, by the way, Jesus in the New Testament equated hatred with murder. Because murder begins with hatred. All of the horrible things that people foist upon each other begin with heart attitudes and heart problems. They hated him, and they hated him even more, and they hated him even more. They couldn't even talk to him. They were so angry with him. And now they see him coming from a distance, and they're like, okay, um, we're sick of this kid. we got to do something about this. And they are going to kill him. And Reuben steps in and says, we, we can't do this. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Right? They had lunch. He's not even worth thinking about. They will grab his coat, we'll throw him in a pit, let's have lunch. He's considered disposable after that. Because they looked up during lunch, verse 25 says, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites, hmm. Ishmael. That son that was born of a relationship that never should have been. I want you to think just for a second. I didn't write this in my notes, but that occurred to me. So I'll try not to get off on too much of a rabbit trail. That's a little dangerous when a preacher says, hmm, I know. But Ishmael, born to Abram with a relationship with an Egyptian slave, Hagar, that should never have happened. And now God is going to use a caravan of Ishmaelite traders to get Joseph to Egypt right where God wants him to be. That shouldn't have happened. This shouldn't have happened. That shouldn't have happened. But oh, look, God's using all of this stuff. God uses what he hates sometimes to accomplish what he loves. Twenty-six. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let our hand not be on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Oh, let's not kill him, let's just sell him, because, I mean, after all, we're family. <laughs> and his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew up Joseph and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then Reuben comes back, and he's heartbroken. The boy is gone. What am I going to do now? I've got to go back to our father. He is considered disposable. And so they take the coat and they kill an animal and they put the blood on it and they say, we'll take this back home and we will let our dad see this thing and he can just draw his own conclusions. He'll assume Joseph is dead and we'll, it'll just be a, a sorrowful thing, but we'll move on. Horrible, right? 
verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Meanwhile, that's just one of those words, right? He's disposable. Well, they were going to kill him, but instead they only sold him because he is family, so let's not do anything too horrible. And now he's gone. Meanwhile, he got sold to somebody else once he got to Egypt. And then the story moves on. I'm telling you, God is still in control when you're dismissed, when you feel like you're just being disposed of. Now, chapter 38 is a unique spot in the scriptures. I'm not going to take the time to go through it. It really kind of deserves its own sermon, and I got one more thing I want to talk about, but uh, it, it's a very unique situation and circumstance that's kind of inserted. This is something else that's happening over here with, with Judah, uh, one of these sons. But I want to go back now and go to Egypt. Now we're going to join Joseph in Egypt in chapter 39. Because I want you to know that God is still working out his plan and purpose even when you do right and suffer for it. I'm interested in the first couple of verses. Almost like, ah, finally, some good news for Joseph. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house of, over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Oh, finally, some good news for Joseph. Finally, now, he's here, and he's in Egypt, and whew, finally, things are going to go better. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Good-looking and well-built. And Potiphar's wife notices that and decides not just to tease a little. She, she, just, she jumps right for the horrible, right? Verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. That's pretty blunt. But he refused. Okay, this is temptation. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this as a mini sermon in the middle, okay? Ways to defeat temptation in your life. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Number one, step number one in defeating temptation in your life. 
Say no. Don't do it. We make so many excuses for ourselves. We put ourselves in circumstances where, man, it's really hard. I got all the way down here. I just, I just couldn't help myself. Quit using that excuse. Yes, you can help yourself. First thing to do is say no. Just stop. Now, I know it doesn't feel that easy. But that's what you need to do, right? When there's temptation that comes your way, you say no. How could I dishonor God by doing this? He refused then repeatedly. Don't think that just because you say no, the devil's going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to trip him up. And don't think that it's always the devil. Let me add that. Don't think that it's always Satan going after you, because where does, where does your struggle come from, according to James? It comes from inside. We're drawn away and enticed because of our own lusts, our own desires. But he repeatedly said no. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie with her or be with her. He avoided her. Get out of the thing that's going to cause you to fall and sin. Get away from it. You got trouble with pornography? Get rid of your computer if you need to. You got trouble with financial issues? Get an accountability partner who can look at your bank account. Whatever the particular issue is you're struggling with, get rid of the temptation as much as you humanly can. Sometimes it's better to just lop it off than allow yourself the luxury of thinking, I can handle this. I can, I can get a grip on this. No, you can't. Your lusts, your deceits, your heart is wicked beyond anything you can imagine. You can't even understand how your tendency is to drift. We talked about that, I think, last week, right? We have this tendency to drift. If you need to, finally, after repeatedly saying no, then find a way to avoid the temptation as much as you can. Third, run away. Verse 11, one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Run away. Flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Run away. We think too much of ourselves when we think, I'll just stay here and fight against this sin and watch God give me victory. Run away. God is still accomplishing his purpose, however, when you do right and suffer for it. Because here's Joseph. The good news had come. Everything was seeming to be better. God was blessing the house of Potiphar because of Joseph. Joseph is standing for right, doing the right thing, resisting temptation, refusing to dishonor God in, with his morality. Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, see how he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He meaning who? She is ready to blame her husband for the fact that she couldn't convince Joseph to sleep with her. He came in, 
to lie with me. I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard I lifted up my voice, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she left his garment laying there until he came home and told him the same story. Look what happened. A false accusation. Completely, totally false. Absolutely no truth to it, whatever. It's the opposite of what happened. And yet, of course, Potiphar is furious. I bring in this slave and look what he did. 19 and 20, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season. Everything going from bad to worse, even when it seemed like, oh, look, wow, here, this is the good thing that was coming out of this. God's blessing me. And then false accusation, and he's in prison. Could it get any worse? He's probably a little afraid to ask that question right now. I want to give you a couple of thoughts to take home, and I want to draw them from the 21st verse of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I want to give you three thoughts from that verse. Because God is always in the process of working out his plan and purpose. God was in the process of taking Joseph to Egypt so that he could provide for his family so that his family could become tribes and eventually become a nation so that his brother Judah would have descendants through whom the Messiah would come so that Jesus could uh, come and live on this earth the perfect life that none of us could live, die the death that all of us deserved, be buried and come back to life again so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation could be saved. That's all happening right here. God is accomplishing his purpose. He's, he's carrying out the seed of the gospel and protecting that seed in Egypt for what will be about four centuries now. And it all affected Joseph very personally. But the Lord was with Joseph. It's a word that talks about being together with somebody, like by their side. He, he bent down toward him. The Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. There's a sense in this phraseology that, that it's like God is bending down near to Joseph and showed him his steadfast love. That's a phrase, that's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament. The loyal love, the steadfast love of God. When you are in a covenant relationship with God, when you come to God and confess your sin and trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation, you are brought into a covenant relationship with God. He covenants himself with you, to you, and he is steadfastly committed to that. God was faithful to him. Lamentations 3 and verse 22 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies 
never come to an end. Perhaps you needed a little encouragement when you came in here today, but I want you to know that no matter what the circumstances is, or you are, whatever you're facing, if you feel like you don't have much to offer, if you've got strained relationships, whatever the circumstance is that, that your life has got going on right now and you're thinking, oh man, I just don't know. God is in the process of working out his plan and purpose, not just for you, for your personal fulfillment, but his plan and purpose in the world. He's got something for you to accomplish for his glory, and I promise you it's related to the gospel because that's what everything God is doing in the world is related to. It may be that you're going to have a friend that you've been having issues with, and you're going to go to them, and you're going to make that relationship right, and you're going to say to them, you know, by the way, why don't you come with me to church on Easter Sunday? Or a family member, or whatever. And God is going to use you to plant a seed of the gospel in somebody's heart. Maybe you're here, and you've never trusted in Christ. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God, and all this stuff, we talk about the gospel so often, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm not even sure what that means. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's what the Bible says. But God demonstrated his love in that while we're still in that condition, he sent Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. He died, he was buried, he came back to life again. Because I am a sinner which encompasses all of us, I'm separated from God, and the, what I earn as a result of my works, my unrighteousness, what I earn as a result of that is death, separation from God. But God offers me a gift, according to Romans 6.23, and that gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've never confessed your sin and repented of it before God and acknowledged that Jesus is the one who God sent here to pay the penalty for your sin, you need to do that today. You need to get in the plan. You need to be to acknowledge God's place in your life. He intends for all people everywhere to follow after him. And if you've never done that, I want to ask you, when the service is over, come on up here. I'll connect you with somebody who can take you and show you from the scriptures how you can know your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven. That's desperately important for you. God was beginning to make provision for that way back here in Genesis chapter 50 to provide a savior who would come and pay the penalty for your sin and mine. So if you've never done that, let us help you take care of that today. Just last Sunday afternoon, someone prayed to receive Christ having been here last Sunday morning because they heard about the gospel and they made it right. Listen, I'm, I'm telling you that there's nothing else you need to do until you get that done. There's a lot other stuff that'll happen in your life and a lot more that God will do as he grows you. But until that happens, that's the only thing you need to be concerned about. And if you're here and there's stuff going on in your life that is making you wonder if there's any way that God can really use you, I'm telling you, he can. Because it's God's specialty is taking broken, 
He takes pieces and he makes something out of pieces. But he doesn't make it for your benefit. He makes it for his glory. That's part of our struggle. We're like, oh man, how am I ever going to, when is my good day going to come? You know why the people in the, in the scriptures and people throughout history have endured incredible uh, persecution and remained joyful in the midst of persecution because they understood God's plan was not about their happiness and fulfillment. It was about his glory. And they understood that if I'm in the face of difficulty and trial and temptation and struggle and even persecution, if God is glorified with that, I'm okay with that. God is still working out his purpose. There will be glimpses like Joseph had where you will see the favor of God on you. There will be times that you will recognize without a doubt, boy, God has been so kind to me. Not because I deserve it, but because this also is part of how he's working out his plan. Listen, I hope you're encouraged. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, have trusted him for your, your salvation and the hope for your soul, God is at work today working out the details so that he gets the greatest glory through your life. There is no greater privilege than that. Worship team is going to come and uh, we're going to sing a song to close and uh, as they do that I'm going to have a word of prayer and uh, thanks again for coming today. I'm so grateful you're here. Uh, there is purpose even if your life seems right today to be in pieces and maybe they aren't all even bad pieces. They just don't, you don't know how they fit together. That's okay. God's working out something that will bring him greater glory. Uh, sometimes we just have to wait and trust him. Father in heaven, thanks for the example of a man like Joseph, who uh, none of us would want to go through that stuff that he did. Even down to the fact that he, uh, he did the right thing and ended up suffering for it anyway. Lord, sometimes we just throw up our hands and say, I don't, what's the point? The point was you had something you were doing and you were going to put Joseph in a spot that you needed him to be in uh, so that you could accomplish your purpose in the world. So thanks, Lord, that uh, though we don't know where we fit in that plan and purpose and our, our particular spot will not likely be as visible as Joseph's, nevertheless, you use us. And you're accomplishing your your will and your purpose in the calling out of a people for your name and fame from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're grateful to be part of that. Bless us, Lord, as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, we're going to close this morning singing a familiar hymn that uh, is well-loved by a lot of us. So let's stand and sing together, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, great.